This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good afternoon. It's Sunday, December 1st, and you are listening to the College Football Daily, a 24-7 sports podcast dedicated to catching you up on and breaking down today's college football news Oftentimes, within 15 minutes or fewer, not today, probably. I'm Connor Tappan. On Sundays, the day's college football news is the games that just happened on Saturday. And usually, we've got a fair bit more than 15 minutes to talk about it. So, Trey Scott has joined me to unpack everything we just witnessed on the gridiron. Trey, let's not bury the lead here. Let's start with Auburn 48, Alabama 45 in the Iron Bowl uh, man, when, when Auburn beats Alabama, they really find an entertaining way to do it. You know, I'm, I mean, normally when the number five team in the country loses, we're meant to come away from it feeling like we learned something meaningful. Uh, but anytime Alabama loses in the Saban area, particularly when it's to Auburn, it feels just like a bunch of chaos, um, that it, it's hard to draw any super meaningful conclusions from some wild plays in this game, including a pair of pick sixes from Mac Jones, who had a good game and a bad game at the same time. Very weird. Uh, some controversial calls at the, at, at the end of the first half with uh, Auburn getting a field goal that Nick Saban doesn't believe should have counted. And then at the very end of the game, Alabama getting drawn into a uh, offside or false start uh, or no, it was illegal substitution. Um, because they were confused by how Auburn was lining up. So Nick Saban, not very happy about any of it. Uh, man, this this was everything you want out of an Iron Bowl. Yeah, I could watch it. <clears throat> I could watch this one all over again. And I think I you know, lost my voice screaming at the TV. Um, I was watching with my family, and I was like, he's not, he's not making that kick. Um, and it, it's just crazy that Alabama – Every time they lose, we sort of have to take a look. Is this the end of the dynasty or the end of an era? And I don't know if it's the end of the Alabama dynasty. That would be silly to say they're, you know, in the mix for a top three recruiting class. They've got eight of the last nine number one classes. But it certainly feels like the end of an era. And when you look at that 2017 recruiting class, Tua and the receivers and, and Najee and Alex Leatherwood and Dylan Moses, that class is over. Um, the Alabama might have seven first-round picks next spring. Offensively, nine of their 11 guys, starters yesterday, are draft eligible, um, men could go. Defensively, it was a mess this season. They might move on already from first-year defensive coordinator Pete Golding. You know, Nick Saban's really not thrilled with how any of that went down. So a new era of Alabama football is going to be ushered in. And I think, you know, we've had a few weeks to think about that now with Tua's injury and, and sort of, oh, wow, you know, this is all we got of Tua. Well, like, let's broaden that. This is all we got of a recruiting class that is that truly went down as one of the five best classes ever. This is all we get. Uh, one national title that they won when most of them were backups, when Tua came off the bench. Um, you know, uh, 
the first team, the first Alabama team to not even make the college football playoff. It's, it's surreal and it, it's crazy. It doesn't, I'm not, you know, don't want to take anything away from Auburn, which absolutely did everything it had to do to win the game and got lucky, uh, of course, but it's, I think it's a pretty bitter, bitter year now uh, in Tuscaloosa. Yeah. And I mean, first of all, we have to say that it's absolutely insane that that is the standard that Alabama has set that make not missing the college football playoff precisely once is kind of this concerning sign that there are some cracks in the foundation. But yeah, I mean, we've seen so much turnover at Alabama and normally it's turnover that we've thought that they've been able to sustain, but I mean, couple, couple of disappointing season with the turnover that's still yet to come and a, a, in an, in an LSU program that has finally seemed to get, get things figured out. And, and even with outside of the SEC West, you've got pressure being applied by Georgia. And even outside of the SEC, you've got Clemson and, and Ohio State looking like they have opportunities to uh, climb to the top of the college football hegemony here. And so it's uh, it the, the, the dynasty has to end sometime. And I know people have looked foolish proclaiming the end of it in the past, but uh, I mean – you know, at some point it is going to end. Things are going to start declining. Alabama might at some point have to settle for merely, you know, just a top 10 season, a top 15 season if we really want to get crazy. But, I mean, we have seen them bounce back in the past. They had uh, at three losses in the 2010 season uh, that uh, where Auburn won the national championship and they, and they obviously bounced back from that and continued their run. So we'll see uh, on, on the Auburn side of things. I mean, you come away from this and with the newfound appreciation, I think for Gus Malzahn and his, and this is a game where Auburn had to turn over every single rock in search of an advantage. And boy, did they maximize every single last one. They get the ball back with 33 seconds left in the first half. And instead of just kind of kneeling it out, they they go to try to score points and they come away with a, a field goal. And then at the very end of the game, instead of just lining up the punt, they use it as an opportunity to sow confusion and Alabama's uh, coverage team, and it, it results in them committing a penalty that ends up winning the game and not even giving them a chance to to go down and tie or win. I I don't know that there are a lot of coaching staffs across the country that are so relentless in their pursuit of an advantage as what we saw from Auburn last night. Well, I mean, it's pretty rare to see Nick Saban get out out schemed or you know out tricked, but he absolutely right. got tricked in the end of the game. I agree with him that the end of the first half was BS. You know, the, obviously Auburn should not have had time to kick a field goal, and of course the three points comes back to bite you. That's now Zahn clearly is keeping his job. I, I thought he should have kept his job ever since week one when they beat Oregon. Gus Malzahn insists that this team is going to win a championship under Bo Nix. And it's hard not to believe him. Like, I don't know what extent of championship we're talking about, SEC West, SEC, but they go 9-3 and three against a brutal schedule. And Bo Nix has not been remotely efficient yet. Like, like they, they won that game almost in spite of Bo Nix, which is crazy to say because he had some gutsy 
plays. I, the, the ceiling is super high for Auburn. This, this win's going to help them on the recruiting trail, too, and they'll reload on defense. But yeah, Gus Malzahn, tip of, the, tip of the visor, man. Like You're the only SEC coach who can beat Nick Saban. Your fans want you gone every single year, every other year. Like, like Connor, like we probably know next, this time next year we're going to be talking about this Gus Malzahn yes. leaving, right? Like the like the the cycle won't stop, but I hope I hope Auburn fans can appreciate it. I mean, I appreciate it. That was that was the game of the year. That was. I don't want. I, I'm very prone to hyperbole, but when we talk about games of the decade, like that's in the top ten. It just is. the The moment felt insane. That pick six felt like the kick six. Like that was. I got. I kind of want to hang up off this podcast and pull that game up on YouTube and watch it again. That was like a, a treat for you. Like that was a, a love letter to college football. Yeah, it was truly incredible. And, you know, we, we talked about in the past how when you have this kind of top group of teams, the Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, LSU, they get together against other top 10, top 15 teams and, and the lines are double digits and the games are never close. And it, it feels like the teams at this level aren't capable of being in this involved in this type of drama outside of being forced to play each other in the college football playoffs. So it it's refreshing to see that the power is not so heavily concentrated at the, at the very tippity top of the college football uh, pyramid here that these kinds of wild games aren't still possible uh, when it comes in a minute. And we all understand that Alabama is very banged up, but even so it, it is a refreshing, a refreshing game, refreshing result. And I know we're moving on, but you, you said that about Gus Malzahn, like the, the, these, like he is a desperate enough coach and ingenious enough coach, a creative enough coach with high school football roots and veer option and, all that stuff. Like, he, there's a reason Gus Malzahn is responsible for so many of these games the last seven or eight years. It's still interesting that Alabama, I mean, Alabama moved the ball. Uh, I mean, if, if this game goes a little bit differently and, you know, that, that, Auburn, that Auburn field goal is not counted at the end of the first half, I mean, in Alabama catches a break, maybe that, maybe that ball that Mac Jones threw off of Najee Harris's back does not lands in the hands of uh, of an Auburn defender uh, and they end up getting some points on that drive instead. I mean, maybe we're talking about, hey, you know what? This Mac Jones-led offense just went into Auburn and against the number four defense in the country coming in, according to SP+, and really didn't miss much of a beat. Um, but... So, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely like they, you're absolutely right. That was the, the storyline in the game. No one's talking about like would Alabama, I know we have another playoff podcast. Like would, if they had won this game, they're in the playoff, right? Like, I think so. Like they moved the ball against the top 10 defense without any issue. Yeah. <laughs> That's the old goal. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, let's move on to the game. Ohio state 56, Michigan 27, some moments of inspiration for Michigan in this one. You know, they scored touchdown on the opening drive of the game. A few big plays here and there for the Wolverines, but nothing that they were able to do was able to match the steady drumbeat of production from this Ohio State offense. They scored 14 points in every single frame, 
just an absolute model of consistency. J.K. Dobbins and Justin Fields accounted for 513 yards in all eight of Ohio State's touchdowns. And just, uh, you know, this is now the, uh, what, an eighth win in a row in this series for the Buckeyes, in, including five wins over Jim Harbaugh. So, uh, I mean, I, what do we think here? A quiet game for Chase Young. I was yeah. surprised at Ohio State's like lack of defensive power here. Um, I mean, it's a great win for Ohio State. J.K. Dobbins continues to prove he's the best running back in the country. This is a really special player. Justin Fields, did you know, I read a stat this morning. Justin Fields is just one touchdown behind Kyler Murray's pace from last year. Like wow. Justin Fields could have a big, big 10 title game and maybe make a serious high push. Mm. So the former number two recruit in the country is living up to the, to the hype. I was just glad that, I mean, there was a, that injury. So we've got two weeks in a row now where Justin Fields has suffered a scary looking injury against Penn state something happens to his left hand and they're like message board rumors that Justin Fields broke his thumb or something. Okay. Saturday, he bangs his knee up and you've got Twitter doctors, which is like my, my new least favorite thing of college football saying MCL. Like that's just an MCL from what I saw on television. Of course, yeah. Justin Fields comes back in and on the next play rolls left and throws a sick touchdown pass. <laughs> but I mean, we were there. The, the drop off for Ohio state, between one and two at quarterback, Justin Fields to Chris Chuganov. I mean, that's, that's stark. That, Ohio, we all, Ohio State's national title hopes were hanging by a thread for a few seconds up there in Ann Arbor a week after Justin Fields had already been hurt. So I think my big thing for next week, I'm wondering against Wisconsin, is like, just like stay healthy, Justin. Yeah, yeah, and there. I think actually against Wisconsin earlier in the season, there was another collision where it looked like he was going to exit the game, but he ended up not. So maybe he's just made out of adamantium or something. I don't know. But that's yeah. right. It rem- it's it's like do you remember last year Tua before he like finally really suffered an injury last year. Tua went to the tent like every like for five straight weeks. Yeah, They're like oh Tua's hurt. Oh Tua's fine. Oh Tua's hurt. Oh Tua's fine. So that's my like. I hate for that to be a storyline. It's like, watch this player's health. But that's like something. Like something he's taking some weird hits over there. So we do indeed know that it will be Wisconsin that Ohio State is facing next week. The Badgers dispatched Minnesota 38-17. to Weirdly, this, I mean, this game does not, this box score does not really look like what you might expect. Jack Cohn kind of went off with some big explosive plays. He ended up averaging 12.7 yards per attempt with two touchdowns. And Jonathan Taylor had two touchdowns, yes, but really only averaged 4.2 yards per carry. Uh, but, you know, it's been kind of a, a, a bit of a roller coaster for the Badgers this season. Started out thinking maybe they were a college football playoff caliber team in the end. I, I think maybe we're thinking very solid team that the best of a surprisingly strong Big Ten West. Yeah, I kind of think the same thing about Minnesota. You said Wisconsin had a roller coaster season. So did the Gophers. Like we, I mean, the air totally out of their balloon today. Um, it, I was I was surprised at this result. I thought Minnesota would play a lot better. I thought they could get more going offensively. I certainly didn't expect Jack Cohn to have a big day. I wonder if Ohio State is, like, I wonder if they even care about 
that it's going to be Wisconsin. I, all I know is it's hard to beat a team twice in the same season. Like, I, Ohio State beat Wisconsin last, like, in October, 38-7. to So I'm not saying Wisconsin's going to put a scare into them. But Jack Cohn wasn't any good that game. And it was close at halftime. So what if Jack Cohn sort of replicates his Minneapolis magic and brings that to Indianapolis? Uh, there's a lot of Apolises there. I don't know. I, I was a little bit more excited about a Minnesota-Ohio State title game than, than Wisconsin Part 2. Yeah, it it just kind of feels like Ohio State is a team that's going to kind of come out and do the thing that it always does, and it almost doesn't really matter who the opponent is, uh, at least in terms of what the, the Big Ten has to offer in terms of challengers. So, yeah, I, I, I really don't think it much matters to the result next weekend, uh, who it was, Wisconsin or Minnesota. <laughs> Ohio State's just really good. Should we talk Jim Harbaugh for a minute? Like, do we have any takes on that? I don't really have like a, I'm not like upset at them for losing that game. I thought he made some decisions at times earlier on, like the kicking field goals is not how you beat Ohio state. I saw a lot after the game, Charles Woodson said it too. Like Ohio state's just more obsessed or into this rivalry than Michigan. It's like Ohio state is devoted on a daily basis to beating Michigan. Mm. And, and that's not like it's, it's, it goes beyond like putting bulletin board things in your locker room. It's how you recruit or how you evaluate or how you coach and how you train. And there's just a sense now that Michigan's fallen so far behind that th- th- this is just an insurmountable hump. But in a way I kind of feel bad for Michigan because your arch rival has truly been good. Like there has not been a really bad version of Ohio state except for the Luke Fickle interim coach team in really our lifetime. Yeah. Like Ohio state has consistently been a monster. That is a tough team to be a rival of. Look across the college football landscape. The other rivals that rivalries we saw Saturday, Clemson, South Carolina. I mean, we're not too, I mean, we're what, how many years removed from South Carolina winning five straight? Oklahoma, Oklahoma state is always sort of a, a six. Oklahoma, Oklahoma state's always sort of toggling the back and forth. Ohio State is a monster. I don't know how, how Michigan's ever going to get over the hump against them. Because we talked, we talked this season about Michigan has these inherent disadvantages that a lot of people don't realize. It's, it's not as easy to win there as you would think. And, and really, it is not a top 10 coaching job in football. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because this result and Jim Harbaugh kind of being dour in the press conference and dismissive of questions is going to be, is going to be the out note for this regular season in which we did see Michigan's offense ultimately take some pretty meaningful steps forward. I think um, in year one under a new scheme to maybe give you some hope for year two. And even in this Ohio state game, yes, you ended up losing by a lot of points in the end, but I mean, there, there were some moments, I think, to be come away and feel encouraged, at least on the offensive side of the ball, about some things you were doing against a, a really good Ohio State defense. But the because because the opposition is so formidable, does have so many things going for it that Michigan simply does not, you're kind of left with this uh, bitter feeling that the Wolverines have now had for eight years in a row. So, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty the, – the fact that Michigan has Ohio State on their schedule every year on top of – some of the other resource disadvantages. It's it's pretty tough. The uh, Michigan's going to be a really interesting team next season because 
they lose a ton on offense. Shea Patterson, those receiver, many of those receivers, um, three fifths of their offensive line. Jim Harbaugh's buyout drops from twelve or drops to ten. So we'll see. We'll see. All right. You mentioned Clemson and South Carolina. The Tigers went into Columbia and did what they what we thought they would. Uh, Thirty-eight to three over the Gamecocks. Not a whole lot worth lingering on here, I don't think. Uh, Trevor Lawrence goes for 295 yards and three touchdowns. And Clemson held South Carolina's offense to 174 yards. Uh, I think maybe the the thing that got the most attention after this game was Dabo's rant after the fact. He was asked about the significance of this game. And he said, you know, we have to win because if we win, y'all would have wanted to drop us to 20, complaining about, Georgia is still being in the top four despite losing to this South Carolina team. Um, but, you know, not not a whole lot to shake up the narrative, uh, I don't think, coming out of this one. Uh, anything you want to yeah, add just, here about your Tigers? <laughs> <laughs> T-Law has been, since October, since mid-October, like completing 75% of his passes. Uh, they've been insane. I think Dava's what probably just trying to keep Keep the foot on the gas. I, I, you're gonna, you're gonna give me some grief here. Does he not have a point about the whole like get Georgia like Connor? You watch the South Carolina team every week, like with one eye, one eye closed. How does Georgia excuse this loss? Like this South Carolina team is atrocious. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's super excusable, and I don't think you know on eye test Georgia is a top four team. So I mean. I, I mean, and this we could get sidetracked into a whole other thing. Sure. But I mean, so like, I don't know. And like you're saying, like you were hinting at, like Dabo, like what is the purpose of what he's saying here? And the answer is probably to keep his team focused, to keep them uh-huh. in the in the in the midst of a season in which they are not like Texas A and M presented the most formidable challenge that they'll see until the college football playoffs starts. And that was three months ago. Um, so like, how do you keep that team motivated? How do you create that kind of siege mentality that us against the world mentality when the reality is that, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you've got, you're, you're fine. Everything's going great for you. And the answer is that you kind of have to make up things to be mad about. And so I think, that, I think that's what this is here. You have to make it up. I mean, the Patriots, like, the Patriots and the Warriors have so annoyingly the last few years and like us against the world. Like, you have to, it's like, I, I, I do think Clemson probably started off this season. Like I, I think the North Carolina game was a result of like, yeah, going into a, like a, a weird game against a team that's a lot better than we thought made a bowl game, but there was probably a sense of, Hey, we can just get off the bus and you know, put the, put the pads on it and, and win the football game. And, and not really have to be too motivated about proving anyone wrong. And clearly, you know, he's found over the years that this motivation and this chip on their shoulder uh, of proving people wrong uh, is, is really the, the recipe here. And it's, it's interesting that the more top flight recruits that Clemson gets, like how that's going to, you know, keep working. But I feel like, like Clemson's, you know, on the midst now or on the verge of signing the number one class in 2020. Yeah, I, I have a feeling he's not going to stop. He's not going to change. Dabba's not going to change his tune. And I think the players who would, are playing there are probably like 
down with that. It would be interesting to see this sort of no one believes in us work at like an Alabama. I don't think Nick Saban's ever going to do that. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I think it's just what he's doing. So we found out who Clemson will face next week in the ACC title game win on Friday, Virginia beat Virginia Tech 39 to 30 for the first time since 2003. The Cavaliers won this one. I, on a recent podcast, I mistakenly implied, even though I knew it was wrong in my head, that it had been since 1993, which is crazy. I just uh, messed up there. Uh, didn't get any hate mail. We must not have any Virginia listeners. But the, the, the Cavaliers <laughs> get the win and become the sixth different team we've we've had a unique uh, winner of the acc coastal uh for each uh er, we've gone through the full cycle every team in the division has won it um and so (laughs) the the cycle begins anew next year um so i mean a little bit of an upset here impressive achievement for bronco mendenhall uh to get to be the sacrificial lamb from the acc coastal against clemson in, in the in the conference title game I think good season for both those teams. Justin Flint, they got off the hot seat, uh, turned, it, turned it around for Bud Foster and then for Virginia. I'm glad. I, I, I liked them a lot this preseason. I, I know it hasn't been quite what they expected, despite the fact that they're making the conference title game. Bryce Perkins has been hurt, but he had a career game Friday. And, hey, if they don't get beaten too bad, they're going to the Orange Bowl. Uh, they, the Orange Bowl will take the, the, the next-ranked ACC team. Um, and, if, and if no one's ranked – then they'll just choose an ACC team. If Virginia, they'll emerge in the 20s to 25 on Tuesday, and if they can sort of not get humiliated against Clemson, they'll be headed to Miami. All right, let's hit Georgia 52, Georgia Tech 7. Not really a whole lot notable here, except for the fact that George Pickens, Georgia's leading receiver, was ejected for fighting and will now miss the first half of the SEC title game, which could end up being uh, rather consequential for yeah. For and the, don't for forget yeah, and don't forget Lawrence Cager, uh, another you know vital Georgia receiver, is already out for the season. So this is hey, we talked in the preseason. Georgia receivers, massive concern for this team, and here you go. It's it's starting to nip them in the bud and this depth is very very shallow uh, hey uh, yeah, at least at least deandre swift's injury will not keep him out for the lsu game it was one of, I, I just think it's one of those games you know georgia georgia tech like georgia walks away with the win but probably doesn't feel very good all right we are going to take a quick break and on the other side we've still got uh, bedlam to get into we've still got utah talk to you about and some coaching carousel news so stay tuned okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, welcome back to the College Football Daily. You know, Trey, we came into this week. The the big concern about LSU was their defense, and they go and they 
hold Texas A&M to seven points. This is this was the offense that was number seventeen in the country coming in, according to SP Plus, and the LSU outgained A&M five hundred fifty-three to one hundred sixty-nine. Business as usual from Joe Burrow, three hundred fifty-two yards and three touchdowns. But I mean, uh, you know, whether this will be enough to flip LSU back ahead of Ohio State, I kind of doubt it given the caliber of Ohio State's win. But, I mean, this this is a, an encouraging sign, I think, from an LSU defense that we know has the talent, but we haven't always seen the production from this season. Yeah, they must have been listening to everybody the last few weeks ever since the Ole Miss game. I can't – I mean, seven points. Come on, Texas A&M. Like, that's – Oh, my gosh, that's horrible. LSU, uh, Connor, I think you're right. I don't think LSU jumps Ohio State this week. But this is impressive enough to start to lay the, lay the groundwork for them jumping Ohio State if, Ohio, or if LSU beats, beats Georgia convincingly. So I, I think we're going to, you know, we won't, you know, there's a lot of back and forth here. I probably have to eat my words a little bit about LSU not being a complete team. Because it's not like A and M doesn't have offensive pieces, and you're right, like you know, top twenty units. So, you know, good for LSU, good for Dave Aranda. Uh, he was probably not too thrilled not being the, the hot new coordinator uh, anymore um, in Baton Rouge. So, I mean, it, it's ahead. not like you were wrong. I mean, they were their defense was 29th in the country according to SP Plus coming into this week, which you know is fine for most teams, but for a team that's has aspirations of going to head to head with the likes of Clemson and Ohio state. Like that's a potentially significant liability. I think maybe if we come out of this period and LSU ends up having a defense that is producing to the caliber of the individual pieces, I think what we might look back and see is that a lot of the points and yards that they gave up were on the road to Texas and Alabama offenses that ended up being top 10 units. Um, I mean, we just saw Alabama, even without Tua uh, Tungabailoa, go into Auburn and score 45, uh, which is, you know, a top five defense in the country, maybe maybe the best defense in the country. So if we, if we look back on this period and conclude that our concerns about LSU's defense were misplaced, I think, that might end up being why. And now that LSU like does have to concentrate and make a, make a concerted effort to demonstrate that they do have a good defense. Like maybe there's a little bit more focus and determination about going out and proving a point down, down in, down out for this unit. Yeah. Like no, no national champion in the playoff era has won with a defense that ranks outside, I believe, the top 16. So LSU would be the outlier. So the, the, the numbers favor them not winning the national title. But there's nothing to say that they can't in the next three games, or two games, really, because I think, I mean, they're in regardless of what happens against Georgia. Nothing to say that these, this collection of defensive talent can't, can't string together the makings of a top 10 defense. I mean, they've got three to four first-round picks on that side of the ball. So we'll see. I, I, my, my concern was the 400-yard rushing game uh, versus Ole Miss. Um, and the, Ole Miss runs the ball in a very different manner than Georgia does. Ole Miss is a lot of uh, counter and trap and you know 
quarterback run game. Georgia will just lean on you. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll see. So different type of test, but can you can you stop the run? Can LSU stop the run against Georgia? Because it's gonna it's gonna absolutely have to stop the run against either J.K. Dobbins or Travis Etienne or whoever it plays in the semifinal. Yeah, that that um, per- defensive performance from LSU against A and M was so impressive that it moved them up from 29th in SP plus to 22nd. So I mean, maybe maybe they've got enough juice to to move up into the that top 15 threshold against Georgia. Seem unlikely, but the, 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 those numbers at this point in the season are relatively static. And the fact that they turned into yeah. performance so dominant that they were able to to move that much is is really interesting. Speaking of dominant defenses, there's no question about Utah's defensive bona fides. They made uh, relatively quick work of you. Colorado beating them 45 to 15 did take a about a quarter and a half to get going on offense, but the Utes put up a point explosion in the second quarter. And that was all the points that they would need to beat Colorado. They ended up adding a bunch more anyway. Uh, didn't really look to throw the ball a whole lot, but when Tyler Huntley did drop back and throw, they had some pretty explosive plays. Um, so this of course locks up the PAC 12 South for the Utes, and we are now headed for a date on Friday with uh, between Utah and Oregon for the Pac-12 title with the Pac-12, you know, kind of fighting for its playoff life here through the Utes. Yeah, it did, t- it did take some time. I, uh, I was a little bit confused as to why Utah didn't look a little bit better. I have more thoughts on the Utes. I'm going to really, yeah. though, I'm going to wait to see how they play against Oregon before really, sh- I, I don't want to hurt any Utah fans' feelings. I I think we have gotten to a point now where we have three teams in college football. Like I think when I look at Utah and I look at the other teams they could be in the playoff with, I don't think there's a comparison. Yeah, I but, think you know I'll save it for another. I'll say I'll save it. Yeah, I think I think there it'll be interesting to see what happens on Friday. I think you can make a case for the fact that maybe Utah's offense has taken a significant enough step forward over the course of the season that they legitimately belong in that top four conversation. I would, I would like to see what they do against Oregon before feeling definitive one way or another. And that's fine because they need to beat Oregon to even be in the conversation anyway. So uh, I, I don't, I don't think anyone can fault us too much for reserving judgment for one more week. Oklahoma 34, Oklahoma state 16, Kind of, you know, it's, it's bedlam here. This game has a bit of a reputation, but so kind of interesting in that context to get our most steady Oklahoma performance in a little while here. They did it by really leaning hard on the run game. Just 17 passes attempted in this one for the Sooners compared to 44 runs. And extremely notably, given how the second half of the season has gone, no turnovers for Oklahoma. No turnovers for Oklahoma. That's exactly what they needed to do. That's exactly, like we talked about LSU, listened to its haters about the defensive side of the ball. Oklahoma's turnover margin, one of the worst in the country. It wasn't sexy, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering what version of Oklahoma, like, what, like where is September OU? It's clearly not coming back, but that's okay, because this was a comfortable win in a rivalry that even last year was like a one-point game. So good for OU. The, the Big 12 title game is going to be very, very interesting because did you see 
Uh, we don't want to spend too much time on it. Did you see what Baylor did to Kansas? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm aware of what the I, score I was. I did not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of. A, to six. Yeah. So, I mean, Baylor in the past couple of weeks kind of showing that perhaps it has a gear that we hadn't previously seen in, in the way they kind of manhandled Texas and, and now Kansas and Kansas, you know, they're, they're a three win team, but I mean, Baylor has been in close games almost every single game this season. So to see them blow a team out is pretty notable. It is worth pointing out that uh, this was not an offensive explosion from the bears. Somehow only 243 yards of total offense. Uh, this was powered by six, Jayhawks turnovers. They had as many turnovers as points in this one. Um, but I mean, hey, that's one way to score points. I mean, it, it sets up an intriguing, intriguing rematch here in, for the Big 12 title game. These two teams maybe playing a little bit differently than they had uh, earlier in the season. I'm excited. It's uh, Baylor. I think Baylor. I think Baylor can make the playoffs if they beat OU. So that's, that's interesting. What's I think, like, I think they would get, to, I think they get the leg up over. I know, I know we have a podcast to talk about. I think they get the leg up over Utah. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see setting up an interesting battle between the big 12 and the Pac 12 with, uh, with Alabama out of it now. Um, all right, Trey, let's move on to some coaching carousel items here. Uh, we've had mm-hmm. Greg Schiano. Rutgers ended up hiring Greg Chiano. I thought this was dead in the water, but it, it looks like this this ended up getting done, huh? Man, backlash led to Greg Chiano getting the Rutgers job. Fan backlash oh. to Rutgers not coming through an agreement with him. Two weeks ago or one week ago, Rutgers was skewered for not being able to meet Greg Chiano's demands, which were monetarily uh, nice. Eight years, $32 million per Feldman. And Rutgers needing to build a football-only facility. So Rutgers didn't, didn't want to do that. Uh, fans let them have it. And Rutgers comes back and, and hires Greg Schiano, which, of course, is a perfectly bizarre way for him to come full circle two years after Tennessee fans revolted about his possible hiring. So he's back. And the Rutgers Scarlet Knights are already trending for a top 100 recruit, uh, Jalen Berger, a, a running back from uh, – from New Jersey. So look like the, the, I think, I think Greg Shiano like could actually make Rutgers respectable again, which is all they could hope for. We did do a podcast uh, several months ago uh, when Chris, Chris Ash was fired uh, with, with Sam Hellman, who uh, is works for our, our news desk now and previously covered Rutgers for quite some time. So maybe we'll rerun that episode at some point this week. Uh, just kind of reassessing what Shiano was able to do during his first run at Rutgers and how he was able to build them into a, a successful program. And I think it's a, I think it's a worthy question to, yes, he is a fit for a lot of reasons, but I mean, were there some unique circumstances ar- around that first run that kind of allowed him to have some success that maybe those circumstances aren't still there. They were in the, in the big, Big East still at the time, and it was a it was a Big East that was losing Miami and Virginia Tech. At much different set of circumstances now, not being in the Big East, but being in the Big Ten East and having to go against Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State every single year. So it'll be interesting. Uh, I guess you know that recruiting buzz is 
pretty exciting, but be interesting to see how that plays out in the long run for sure. Not coming back next year is uh, Barry Odom at Missouri, uh, fired after going 25 and 25 and four seasons. You know, some kind of a weird year for Missouri. They had this NCAA ruling about their bowl eligibility hanging over their head. They had Kelly Bryant transferring in from Clemson. That ultimately not resulting in a particularly productive offense, uh, but the Tigers kind of being aggressive here and pulling the trigger. Yeah. I mean, they, they started off five and one and they lost five straight. I think that's anytime you lose five straight games, I think that's an indictment on you know what's going on inside the locker room because we looked at Missouri as a top 25. This team could be eight and no by the time they played Georgia type of team. And they were also horrible on the road, which was like one of the worst road teams ever. So it'd be interesting to see what Mizzou does. Geographically, it's a weird fit in the SEC, but it recruits decently. Like, Missouri should be better than it is. I think you juxtapose what Missouri is doing with what a few other schools aren't doing, like your South Carolina Gamecocks. I think it's sort of interesting. It'll be interesting to see in a year – who was rewarded for, for having faith and, and rocking with stability and, and who was rewarded for you know getting out of something that they don't think is going to be uh, you know prosperous in, in the long term. And we've got like speaking of like making move now or later, like it's very sketchy reports right now about Clay Helton's future uh, as we're recording this. Um, Bleacher Report just ran with, I don't think a very rock solid report, um, but you know, it looks like looks like by the time our podcast airs, like we could have some, some movement at USC too, which I think, I think if USC does, it does, or you know, depending on when you listen to this, did move on from Clay Allen, that's the right call. That is the right call. Uh, they spent the entire season with us operating under the assumption that they would. And they've maybe warmed up to the idea of keeping him for another year, but he's a lame duck coach and they're recruiting in the sixties right now. And it's hard to, they're never we're going to be able to have a good recruiting class with a lame duck coach operating him. So I'm going to tentatively put him, Connor, under the under the status of – well, I'm not going to say he's not back, but I mean, I'm not going to say he's not not back either. And speaking of not back, I'm interested to see if any of our podcast listeners know the name Frank Wilson at UTSA. He just went four and eight, and he's been fired. He was a, a really, really important part of what LSU was able to do under Les Miles as far as a recruiter. So – he now could be a pretty coveted free agent. Frank Wilson could um, for schools in the Texas uh, and the SEC areas um, to go get a, an absolute ace of a, a recruiter. You know, Florida state just got blown out by Florida and, and we've seen James Franklin's name connected to the Florida state job in the media. And I know he's been denying it. How, how seriously are you taking those rumors? I think James Franklin is probably a more logical fit at USC if that comes open than, than Florida State. Florida State's had an easier path to a national title than, than Penn State. Um, better recruiting base, all that jazz. But I also think there's a time, unless you're winning titles, that coaches probably need to move on from a job. Um, or, or else, yeah, you know, I mean, it's the way the hot seat comes and goes so quickly is it's crazy. Like Mark D'Antonio at Michigan State. He's fallen out of favor after you know four years ago, and they were in the playoffs. So I think James Franklin, absolutely. Like I, I would, I think in the past there have been jobs that James Franklin has been linked to, like every single year. Where it's like, no, 
this is just James Franklin finding a way to get more money. But I think Florida State could be a spot for him because it doesn't seem like they're going to keep interim coach Odell Hagens, which there had weirdly been some buzz for. I think probably uh, in the wake of what LSU's done with Ed Orgeron, there's like a new appreciation for interim head coaches. Um, but uh, I think Florida State, if it's not James Franklin, it's, it's maybe Matt Campbell or Mike Norvell. It's, it's not going to be Mark Stoops or Bob Stoops. It's interesting what you say about Franklin. It kind of got me thinking like football is kind of, well, not every sport in the world is one where the baseline expectation is that if a coach is having success at the place that he's at, well, then he just stays there forever until he stops having success. Like in soccer, at least like coaches just kind kind of come in, achieve what they can achieve and then kind of like look for a new challenge. Um, but college football culturally is, is very, is very different, I guess, but maybe it's possible that James Franklin might be wired a little differently in that regard. Um, we do have uh, some coaches who are, I believe confirmed as coming back. Uh, let's start with Joe Moorhead at Mississippi state. We didn't talk about the egg bowl, but my word. Oh my God. <laughs> if that, if, Dude, lifting his leg in the end zone ends up being the thing that keeps Joe Moorhead in Miss, at Mississippi State. And that, I mean, it's it's fascinating to think that five years from now, we could look back at that as a significant turning point in the direction of either Mississippi State, Ole Miss, or both. Yeah, Steve Robertson, uh, a 24-7 sports reporter over at jeanspage.com, which is our Mississippi State site, said he's coming back on the grounds that the 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 administration liked the team's, you know, preparedness for the Egg Bowl. And again, if Elijah Moore doesn't, you know, lift his leg up, we could be talking about a totally different game. Just insane. I think it's nuts to base a decision like that with millions of dollars in the balance over one game. But that's yeah. clearly what they've done here. I, I, I don't think anyone thinks that Joe Moorhead is a fit at Mississippi State. He even sort of tongue-in-cheek alluded to it. He said, you're going to have to drag my Yankee ass out of here. The Northeastern guy, he's not a fit in the South, which is an annoying thing to say. Like I'm, I'm, I don't want to be the guy who's like he's not a fit down here, but it's it's just not the most natural marriage. But at fourteen eleven, Mississippi State fans, like this is interesting. Dan Mullen spoiled them a little bit. Like there are no Mississippi State is ten years removed from being should have you know, they should be thrilled to make bowl games, given you know their their program's history. And now they're disappointed in, in last year's eight and four season. So I think Joe Moorhead's going to be the victim of Dan Mullen's success uh, down there. And I think I'd be surprised if he's still around in, in two years. We also had, I guess, did Arizona confirm that Kevin Sumlin will be yeah. back? Kevin Sumlin is returning. Um, he is, I believe, 9-15 and 15 in two seasons. Um, this is an interesting one because Kevin Sumlin – should be doing a way better job than he is. He pretty much robbed us of two years of Khalil Tate. He's three and seven against the Pac-12 South. He's going to have to hire a new defensive coordinator. And it's not like he took over a program that was in the dumps. Rich Rodriguez got fired for reasons totally not related to on the field success. But Kevin Sumlin in his third year. And I have to say, I don't disagree with this decision because I'm starting to look at Kevin Sumlin in a sort of fonder light Looking at like what he did at Texas A&M, nine and three, eight and four, eight and four, nine. Like 
they would take that right now. So I, I think Kevin Sumlin is a good football coach. I don't know if Arizona could get someone better than him. Uh, I think a third year is the move. And I look, it's very clear that three years is like, we used to say give coaches four years and like the past few years we've been saying, give them three. I think it's what, two years is starting to become the new, the new three, right? Yeah. Like, it certainly feels like it. people are making moves. Yeah. People are making moves. And there's one coach. There's one coach, Manny Diaz at Miami. They just lost to Duke. They lost to FIU. They've lost to Georgia tech. I don't think Miami can afford to make a move. But we could be seeing our, our very first uh, in a long time firing after one season not related to, to off-the-field issues. Just keep an eye on it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, they, they, they honestly have not been a team that's been very much on my radar this season as far as me having an understanding of, about what has gone wrong there because they just kind of losing some games early just kind of kind of totally fell off the national picture. But, uh, yeah, I mean... I guess I guess it was possible that there that they would have a season like this, but I mean it is year one. But man, you you, you thought given the pieces returning, um, given the pieces coming in through the transfer portal, that, that the results would be a little bit better there. I'm uh, rooting for Diaz as a as an analytics guy and a young guy kind of being a. So I I, I hope I hope he's able to stick around and get things figured out. That'd be kind of a bummer to see Miami kind of get stuck in this uh, malaise after it, after it seemed like they were well and truly back just a couple of years ago. Um, and I guess no one's ever really back Connor. Yeah, that's true. Um, I guess, I mean, Will Muschamp seems like he's coming back. I, and that's certainly been the consistent, well, rel- relatively consistent messaging from uh, the South Carolina ad- administration. But I, I kind of had it in the back of my head. Well, like, sure, you say he's coming back no matter what happens in Clemson, but have you really thought about what it's going to feel like with the uh, Williams-Brice Stadium, 50% Clemson fans and a a total blowout uh, for for a sixth year in a row? I guess there's maybe two close-ish games in there. But uh, I, as of as of when we're talking on Sunday, it looks like they are sticking to that. I kind of thought that the reality of confronting that situation might changed some minds a bit but i guess it hasn't anyway i think that's going to do it for today's episode of the college football daily we'll be back tomorrow as we as we always do i guess for the last time this year kind of previewing what we're going to see from the college football playoff uh, selection committee on tuesday night Uh, if you appreciate what we're doing here at the college football daily we ask that you do one thing this week to help spread the word about the show Ideally, one of those things would include leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. For Trey Scott and our producer, Tony Levitt, I'm Connor Tappan. We'll see you tomorrow for the next episode of the College Football Daily. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo. Thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future. New documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.